Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the myth, misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Thinking um, we should perhaps change our rostering to make sure people of all the same heights speak up here. Uh, It creates a bit of havoc, doesn't it? Up and down, up and down, up and down. Anyway, you'll find an outline of what I'm going to say. Uh, on there, and as per usual, uh, it is good to have your Bibles open in front of you. Now, I don't know if you ever, actually, let me just start my little timepiece so I can pretend that I care how long I go for. I don't know if you ever feel the weight 
of comparing yourself in a situation and coming up short. Yesterday I went for a run. It was the first run I'd been on for a very long time. And as I went up uh, past the cemetery up the top of the hill over here, I passed another guy coming the other way looking very earnest. And then I looped around and came back through Wardgate Valley and I passed him again. And so I did the maths sort of approximating in my head and I worked out that he was moving way faster than I was moving. Uh, And um, the comparison wasn't flattering really. But um, I could live with that. I can live with that. But we do this, don't we? Maybe it's someone at work who always seems to have the best ideas or always seems to get noticed to have the best ideas, even the ideas were yours to start with, perhaps. Maybe it's the person at school who is better at sport than you are or the person at uni who gets just consistently better grades by seemingly doing less work than you're actually doing. And the comparison is happening and you feel that you actually fall short. Now, I know there are some of you out there that are content with mediocrity. Uh, That is another issue entirely. I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking. Is that all of you, is it? (laughs) No, far be it, far be it. That has other issues attached to it. Uh, but you'd agree with me that that kind of comparison is unhelpful. But we can live the Christian life like that. Pastors have a trap. I'm going to share my heart with you. I've, under God over many years, I think I've got a hole on this one. But the danger when you meet a new pastor, you know what we ask each other? How big's your church? How many staff have you got? That kind of thing. And you hear the stories. And like pastors' meetings are like Facebook. Everyone has a better church than you have. No, no one has a better church than I have, can I say. But, you know, the reality is, is that it always sounds so good. And you can feel that condemnation. You can feel that. Maybe you feel it as a parent. Everyone else's family looks way better than your family. All sorts of things. But we can feel it in our Christian lives as well. And this is what the Apostle Paul was wrestling with last week. Living under the law and feeling that condemnation and trying to do the good stuff, trying to do the right stuff and coming up short. And you get to the point where at the end of Romans chapter 7, what does he cry out? Who's going to save me from this body of death? He's there in despair. But brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, if you're someone who's seeking to live for God, you will know that there is a gap. There is a gap between the reality of your life and the, reality, and the, and the, the life that you have been called to live in Christ. And feeling that tension is not necessarily a bad thing. We live in that gap. And the Apostle Paul, as we've been working through Romans, has acknowledged that. And if we are serious about our Christian lives, we feel it. But there's a right way and a wrong way of dealing with that. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 lays out the better way, the other way, not the way of the law. Because the law, if you remember last week we looked at it, when religion, does anyone remember what religion says? Religion says, if you perform, you will be accepted. You're good if you meet the criteria. And we can do this to ourselves across 
every area of our lives. We can build our self-image, our self-understanding as good people, as successful people, as people who are um, worthy of esteem by fulfilling, whether it's a religious agenda or an irreligious agenda. You see this, uh, we looked at Kate Campbell, didn't we? So this is Kate Campbell after only being the sixth fastest person in the world at this event. Uh, And she says, I've always said that I don't need a gold medal to have self-worth. That's being put to the test at the moment. That's when she got out of the pool. This was an interview later on in the week. She said, more than anything else, I just can't forgive myself just yet for those 60 seconds. She has a criteria and it is condemning her. At the moment, she has fallen short. She feels the gap and she feels condemnation. Paul, at the end of Romans 7, he says, you know, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He feels the gap, but he doesn't go to the condemnation that Kate Campbell goes to. He goes into Romans chapter 8 and praise God uh, that Paul didn't stop writing Romans at chapter 7. It is a fantastic passage uh, and over the next three weeks we're going to be digging into it at some depth. Now, I just want to encourage you, as I always do, to pay attention. Uh, But Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great English preacher, he said, most of our troubles in our Christian life are due to the failure to realise the truth of this verse. This is Romans 8, verse 1 that he's talking about. So if you're ever going to pay attention in a sermon, this is probably a really good one to do. And what is the truth of this verse? It is there. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation. How do we feel about that? No condemnation. We live in a world and we have hearts that manufacture condemnation. There was nothing about that guy. He didn't run past me and say, Cameron, you're slow, you're fat, you're ugly, whatever. He didn't say those things. But I manufactured that in myself as I ran past. I went, wow, it's running much faster than I am, you know. He did that. I did that to myself. He didn't do it. We do it to ourselves on so many levels. We do it to ourselves as Christians. We condemn ourselves. Others condemn us. But God never will. Do we actually believe it? Do we actually believe it? That whatever is in our past, our present, and our future, nothing, nothing will come against us when we stand before God. He's not going to say, oh, scraped in. He's not going to say, actually, there's a few issues, few issues I need to talk to you about. He's not going to say, Wait till your father gets home. There's nothing waiting. There's nothing that is going to appear. Brothers and sisters, do we hear this? Because in Romans 7, Paul felt the condemnation of the law. And we can feel it ourselves. But here he says there is no condemnation. And you don't actually grasp how amazing this actually is 
unless you actually accept at the core of your being that condemnation is exactly what you deserve. We live in a culture these days where uh, we need to praise kids for everything. Uh, Everyone gets a prize uh, and that kind of thing. And so we're all really good. Uh, We have trouble, I think, as a culture saying the hard word. You remember your school reports, if you're as old as me, if you're in your 30s and you're as old as I am, uh, I used to get school reports that used to tell mum and dad exactly where in the class I came. 24th out of 25th. Cameron would get better marks if he paid attention. Cameron needs to grow up. They had no trouble in saying the harsh word. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of humanity. Unless we feel the weight of that and that we deserve that, we don't actually hear the wonder of no condemnation. And how is it? Paul unpacks it. He says, what the law was powerless to do, the law could never save us because it was weakened by the flesh. So you remember that the sinful nature would take the law and actually provoke sin, provoke sin. The law couldn't save, but God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Jesus Christ became man. He lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died to bring us to God. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, Galatians tells us. And so God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. So when God declares... No condemnation. There is no miscarriage of justice here. There is no one within creation that can say, actually, God, there is guilty as hell. What happened as Christ died is that the just requirements of the law were met. Jesus' death wasn't a miscarriage of justice on a cosmic scale. It was on on a human scale. But Romans 5.18 tells us that it is Christ's righteous act. It is the just act when he died for us. Jesus was justly condemned as he bore our sins. And as we are united with him by faith, our penalty is borne by him. And so Paul can say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There are no condemnation for those who live according to the Spirit, he says there in verse 4. This is the doctrine of justification. Let me take it a little bit further. As I said, we live in a world that condemns us on so many levels. Some of you are in jobs where there are KPIs. Does that make sense to you? Key performance indicators. And you are measured and your worth is determined according to meeting those KPIs. I met uh, with a friend during the week and he was telling me that in his old job, uh, his pay month by month would depend upon those KPIs. If he scored well on those KPIs, he'd get a lot of money. Uh, If he didn't, he'd get less. 
his real value to the company was entirely built on performance. You know, year 12, SACE or IB, it's exactly the same, where your entire worth as a student is summed up in one number. I still don't actually quite understand what that number means, but you know what it is, and you feel it in your heart, don't you? If I could get you to choose between 60, 80, and 99.95, which one would you choose? You all know which one you want. You want 60. I heard that. But we know because we value 99.95 more, don't we? But the amazing thing is that whatever the world tells us to build our life on, on our performance, Christ is that solid rock and the status that we have in him, not only as forgiven sinners, but as the end of this passage we'll see, as loved children, it doesn't matter what your boss says. It doesn't matter what the SACE says. It doesn't matter what anyone says other than what Christ says. And nothing can touch that. Get that deep into your heart. Justification also lets us be honest with our sin. Because I don't have to pretend I've got it all together. Because God actually accepts me regardless of the fact that I don't have it all together. Regardless of the fact that I don't have it all together. I can actually confront the sin in my own life, the sin in my own heart. And it doesn't rock the core of my being. In America, there was a story, horrible story, about a couple who lost three children in a car accident. They ended up going into a dam uh, and those three children drowned. Uh, And these people, they bore up under intense suffering and they bore testimony to the goodness of God. But some years later, the husband was being counselled by the pastor in his church because he was attracted strongly to another woman who wasn't his wife. And he could not face that. And he killed himself. Because his status, his understanding of himself was this rock, this pillar of the church, this one that stands firm, but he couldn't deal with the fact that his heart, like my heart, like your heart, is sinful. And it rocked his identity so much that he killed himself. Brothers and sisters, this truth sets us free. It lets us love those who are different from us. Law makes you proud. If you succeed, you end up condemning everyone else who doesn't come up to your standards. You end up condemning everyone else who doesn't come up to your standards. But if I have a status that depends wholly and solely on what God has done for me in Christ, I can't pretend that I'm better than you because I'm not. The only difference between me and the person who's on the street, the person who's living the wild life, the person who's made moral choices that I would never make is the grace of God. And so that lets me love them and serve them and not be proud and think, I've got it all together. You'd be lucky if you were as good as me. I'm a sinner who's received grace and they are sinners who need grace. We could keep going, but we're not going to. Keep exploring that. Dig it deep down. 
Justification is the foundation, not just for salvation, but for the entire life. So Paul now, in verses 5 to 9, he drums home the, the old way and the new way. And so we have an old track that he talks about as flesh. Now, the word flesh, actually, uh, it could just be this stuff, bodies that we inhabit. But in Scripture, when Paul often uses the idea of flesh, what he's actually talking about is human nature that is anti-God. Okay? So he's not just talking about all the stuff that we think about in flesh. We think about all the, uh, you know, all the juicy sins, if you want to put it, you know, lust and adultery and all that kind of stuff. That's flesh. Pride, coveting, all those things. The entire human nature directed in an anti-God direction. Paul says it for us here. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. They don't want what God wants. They want to live according to their own rebellious human nature. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. Enemies with God doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. A non-Christian has no no desire to keep God's law for God. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Paul is reminding them, this is the railway track that they were on, and the destination is inevitable. It leads to judgment, to condemnation, to slavery, and to death. That is inevitable that that track will lead in that direction. But Paul now says, you're not on that track. There is another track. There is a new track, a new way that is not by the old human nature, but it's by the spirit. Romans 8 again. Those who live according to the spirit have their mindset on what the spirit desires, on what God desires. The mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. By implication, friends with God, serving God, pleasing God and it's a track that leads in a destination that is inevitable as one leads to condemnation and death this track this track in the spirit leads to life and so you might be there going oh well I hope I hope I've got the spirit well, Paul anticipates that. Verse 9, he sets your hearts at rest. He says, you are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. So if you've got the Holy Spirit, you're in the realm of the spirit. You're on that track which leads to life. Okay, oh, do I have the spirit of God? If anyone does not have the spirit of God, they do not belong to Christ. Turn that round. Anyone who belongs to Christ has the spirit of God. So if you're a Christian person, if you have put your faith in God through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have the spirit. Paul is actually talking about the life in the spirit is not super Christian. It is ordinary garden variety Christian. Every Christian has the spirit. Every Christian is on that track, the track of life, the track of the spirit, not the track of the flesh that leads to death. And it is one of these things that we need to sink that home. Where are we? We are not in the realm of the flesh. We are not under condemnation. We have a new power that lives in us. Paul acknowledged in Romans 7 
at the start of uh, the passage that Diana read for us, that we have this dual nature, this conflict that is within us. And it's there in verse 10. Even though your body is subject to death, even though sin is there, its penalty has been paid, its power has been broken, but it still lives there, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. You have this conflict that is part of the normal Christian life. Say that again. That conflict is part of the normal Christian life. I used this illustration, and I was corrected, that actually on June 6, 1944, uh, the Allies landed on the uh, west coast of France, D-Day. And there's a very real way that that is actually when World War II was won. But the fighting went on for that extra period through to September 2 the following year to to pursue the victory that really had been won on D-Day. In the Christian life, it's even starker. The victory is won at Calvary. We've sung it. And we now live in the conflict until the final, uh, the final resolution of the conflict when Christ returns or we go to be with him. The victory's won. There's no doubt but the conflict remains. J.C. Ryle, the true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience. Why? Because of justification by faith, grace, God's work for us. But war within, peace of conscience, war within. He may be known by his warfare as well as by his peace. But verse 11 tells us the victory is guaranteed because if you've got the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead if that one is living in you it will he will give you life to your mortal bodies because his spirit lives in you victory guaranteed so how do we live how do we live now if you go down to um all the christian bookshops you'll find lots of Books with really exciting titles like Victorious Life and that kind of thing. And I hate them, can I say? Can I hate them? The reason I hate them is not because I don't want to have a victorious life, but because so often the victorious life has more to do with my victories. Christian, you're actually, you're actually to live a victorious life based on Christ's victory. And that's what Romans is telling you. Because you can get this idea that I should have this perfect Christian life. I don't struggle with sin anymore. You know, sin, that's something in the past. Died to sin. Sin's not an issue for me anymore. Well, pride might be. Uh, Self-deceit might be. Um, the victorious life is built on Christ. It is prosecuting his victory at every point of your life. That is the victorious life. It's a life of freedom, but it's not a life that is free of obligation. Verses 12 and 13. We have an obligation, Paul says, but not to the flesh. That's where you were. It's not where you are now. You died to that. That is not your world. You live in the spirit. It's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. It is incompatible for the Christian to live in a way that is consistently opposed to God. 
A Christian that just, who just doesn't care about the things of God. A Christian for whom God's word has absolutely no interest. A Christian who can sin and just go, actually, don't really care. You know? Are they a real Christian at all? Obviously, God ultimately is the judge of that one. But Paul is saying it is completely incompatible for a Christian to live that way. It's like a husband and wife at the, at the, getting married. They say their vows to each other, and then she walks out, and she goes on a date with a boyfriend. And then she goes and shacks up with someone, and you go, what's happened? What about the promises? Didn't you commit... Is that real? No. No, it's not. Paul says for the Christian, it doesn't mean we won't struggle. It doesn't mean we won't fight. It doesn't mean we won't fail and pick ourselves up. But one of the things he's saying to us in this passage is that the struggle itself is for our assurance. Because those of the flesh, they don't struggle. They don't care. They don't care what God thinks about that. The fact that you struggle actually is a sign that God is at work. I can remember one of the times in my life where I was dealing with a couple of big issues of my life that were not what God would want. And it was breaking me. And I can remember living under that condemnation. I had the law in place. And I knew that I fell short. But it was a brother getting alongside of me and actually saying, it's actually a good thing that you hate what you are doing. Because if you didn't, that would be the problem. We all will sin. But those who live of the Spirit, they fight They fight by the spirit and Paul says they put to death the misdeeds of the body. There can be no accommodation with sin. The 1930s saw a lot of European leaders coming to nice cosy agreements with Adolf Hitler. Policies of appeasement, oh fine, you can bite off a chunk of that country and a chunk of that country and you can have a bit of this and a bit of that. Winston Churchill, when he came on the scene, he said appeasement is like feeding a crocodile hoping it will eat you last. You cannot appease sin. It will eat you. Sin is dangerous and Paul says we are called to put it to death. John Owen said, sin is not only alive in us, but it is still acting, still labouring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. We have this dual nature and we are called to fight, to put to death sin. Is that a work in itself? I've come across Christians who've said, that's God's business. I let go and let God. Have you ever heard that phrase? I don't think that's a biblical phrase. I don't think it's a helpful phrase. Because it's not letting go and let God. It's also not taking it all and shutting God out of the picture. John Murray says it like this. He says, God's work in us is not suspended because we work. 
So because I'm doing something, it's not an evidence that God is not working, nor our working is suspended because God works. So it's not let go and let God. The relation is that because God works, we work. Because the spirit is alive in us, we fight. Because it is he that is convicting us of sin. It is he that is prompting us on to seek God's way. It's not a pious passivity, but it is a battle that is fought in full dependence on God using God's weapons. I want to give you three little headings to think of it underneath, uh, under as we come to a conclusion. Because it's one thing to say, put sin to death. Well, how? How? Oh, you do it by the Spirit. Well, how? Okay. Let me give you three words. Vision. You don't change anything unless, you, unless you're actually motivated to change it. You know? Unless you actually think there's something wrong here, there's a much better option. So getting a vision of what God has made you to be, getting a vision of the sinfulness of sin, going into God's word, dwelling on the gospel, recognizing what it is that he has saved you from and what it is that he has saved you for. Letting the gospel by the spirit break your heart and then restore you. Wield the sword of scripture against the sin that still holds out in your heart. If you think that you'll just wake up one morning and, oh, that's gone away, it won't. But if you truly love what God loves and seek to cultivate that love and you seek to hate what God hates, Chris Jolliffe, who was up here during the week, he said that's a prayer that he prays for himself each and every day. I think it's a great prayer. God, that I might hate what you hate and I might love what you love. That will give you a vision, a vision that will inspire change, a vision of his grace and mercy and love. But it's not enough just to have the vision. You've actually got to have intention. You've got to have a will to change. Why would you want to? I want to read you now from Martin Lloyd-Jones, read from him a bit earlier, but this is an illustration that helps us see our sin now. He said, the difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man transgressing one of the laws of England or any other state and a member of a family doing something that is displeasing to another member of the family. See the difference? One is breaking a law of the state. One is actually getting up your brother, sister, husband, wife's nose. In one case, a man commits an offence against the state. In other, a husband, say, has done something that he should not do in his relationship with his wife. He is not breaking a law. He is wounding the heart of his wife. That is the difference. It is no longer a legal matter. Let me read that. He is not breaking a law. He is wounding the heart of his wife. We are not breaking a cosmic law. We are breaking the heart of our God and Father. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? The man does not cease to be the husband of the woman, nor the woman to be the wife of the husband. The Lord does not come into the matter at all. It lies outside that realm. In a sense, it is now something much 
worse than a legal condemnation. I would rather offend against a law of the land objectively outside me than hurt someone I love. As we internalize that, as we recognize that this father loved us so much that he gave our brother Jesus to die for us so that we might be set free from this life. If that doesn't give you a motivation to change, I don't know what will. Get rid of the legal category and see that our sin breaks our father's heart's heart. What means does he give us? That's the last one. Vision, intention, means. What are the weapons that God has given us? He's given us his gospel. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the word. He's given us prayer. He's given us song. He's given us one another. He's given us the Lord's table as we share these visual reminders. He's given us all the richness of Christian life together. That is what he gives us. And by those things, depending on God through his spirit, we will put sin to death. Our struggles, brothers and sisters, are evidence that God is at work. So keep fighting. Don't let sin break your hope. Let it break your heart because it breaks God's heart. But never let it break your hope because God will never let you go. That's where Romans 8 ends. There is nothing in all creation that will stand between you and the Father who loves you. Our struggles are evidence of his work in us. And we stand not only as forgiven sinners, but as beloved children. We'll spend more time in this next week. The spirit we received brought about our adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Dad, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might share in his glory. Brothers and sisters, you are loved children of God. There is now no condemnation for you. Live in that. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing truth this is. What an amazing truth that we stand holy upon the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us. That the penalty that we deserved has been paid. That there is nothing, nothing that can come against us. If you have declared us righteous, nothing can declare us guilty. Father, we ask that you would help by your spirit this gospel truth to dig down deep, to become something that we chew on in our hearts, in our minds. Father, something that we would never let go because you will never let us go. Let it be the, the foundation under our feet, the thing that we go back to, the touchstone for our identity and worth. For the life that we live, let it be something that is empowered 
by the grace that you have lavished upon us and you have brought to bear in our hearts by the Spirit. Father, we rejoice that you loved us this much. Not because we were lovable, but because you are love. And Father, we pray that we would, by your Spirit, respond in love and seek to live lives that bring you honour. And we pray this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.